If you would, go ahead and open your copy of God's Word to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, it is, Ruth is a tiny book that is uh, tucked between Judges and 1 Samuel, so do not be ashamed if you need to turn to the table of contents to find it uh, by any means. Uh, as you do that, uh, let me welcome those of you who are visiting with us, either here in person or online. Uh, my name is Kyle Valer, and I have the privilege of serving on staff as one of your pastors, so uh, we are glad that you are here this morning. I want to speak to those of you who have ever asked God, where are you? To those of you who have ever asked God, why? To those of you who have ever not prayed because in your grief you couldn't find the words or in your anger you didn't want to find the words. I want to speak to those of you who have ever thought that God was giving you the silent treatment and you were just returning the favor. If that's you this morning, I'm glad that you're here because the book of Ruth has much to say to you. If that's not you this morning, if you've never been in that kind of position, then I want to invite you uh, to listen in because sooner or later, life in this broken world is going to turn you upside down. And maybe, just maybe, in that moment, when that day comes, God will bring to your mind the things and truths that you've heard this morning, that you might remember that in the foreign land, in life's dark valleys, or in that deepest, darkest pit that you can imagine, God is with you. That's related to the title of the series that we have during Christmas, that God is with us, and it's why we turn to the book of Ruth this morning. And so if you have your place in God's Word and you're able to stand, let me invite you to do so as we read chapter 1 of Ruth. We're going to cover chapters 1 and 2, but we're only going to read chapter 1. The book opens this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malone and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each one of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with your people, with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, uh, to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her father-in-law, or her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, "Is, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. It is no mere word for us, it is our very life. So I pray that you would help us to see it clearly, to hear it clearly, and to live by it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, even though this book is named Ruth, the story actually opens up focusing in on another woman named Naomi, whom we come to find out is Ruth's mother-in-law. And we're told that the time period for this story is when the judges ruled. The period of the judges marked by, it was marked by Israel's repeated failures. If you were going through a reading plan in your Bible and you had read the, the book of Judges, you would see this for a time the people would turn away from the Lord, Yahweh as he was known at that time, and they would face the curses of the covenant, uh, the covenant that they had with Yahweh. Sometimes these curses took the form of famines, like verse 1 in Ruth speaks of, or it, it might be an invading army that would come in and conquer them and oppress them. But then the people would call out to Yahweh who, for, for rescue. They would amend their ways, and, and Yahweh would raise up a judge or a leader to come and to deliver the people out of their distress. And it was like this cycle that just kept happening over and over again. 
But this time frame is known as the time of the judges, not the judge, the judges, plural, because the people kept returning to their sin, experiencing the curses of the law, calling out to Yahweh in repentance, and he kept raising up new men and women to deliver the people from their distress. And over time, it's just this cycle that keeps happening over and over and over again, but not the same way. It keeps getting worse and worse and worse. If you read the entire book of Judges, it's just, it goes from bad to worse to worse. So our our story being set in the days when the judges ruled, this isn't insignificant. It's meant to tell you that what you're reading is happening in the middle of a society that is breaking down from within. Everyone is doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And even as we see today in our own times, when right and wrong is left up for everybody to decide for themselves, everything that binds a culture and a society together begins to break down. Elimelech and his family are leaving the promised land to find food because God's judgment upon the nation's sin has resulted in a famine. Their hometown, Bethlehem, which, which literally means bread of, or house of bread, there isn't any bread to be found there. And so they're headed for the land of the Moabites, the Moabites who were historically enemies of the nation of Israel. It's not ideal, but, but for at least a, a time, it seems that they're able to carve out a little life for themselves until Elimelech dies. What we read in one verse, verse 13, was likely the worst day of Naomi's life up until that point. We read over it very quickly. Sometimes it's good to pause and to consider this was an awful day in Naomi's life. Her husband is gone. She's now left in a foreign land to raise two sons on her own. But she did what she had to do, and her boys grew up, and they eventually married two Moabite women, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and Ruth. We don't know anything about these women other than they're Moabites. The text keeps telling us they're Moabites, which is significant because while there wasn't an explicit command not to marry the Moabites, like there was a a very clear command about other people groups, It definitely wasn't the norm for an Israelite to marry a Moabite. But the text doesn't spend a lot of time on the marriages, so we're not going to either. The boys married the Moabite women, and that's the setup for what happens next. Because what comes next for Naomi can only be described as crushing. She doesn't just lose one son. She loses both sons. Again, we have no details. We just know that Naomi has just arrived at one of the darkest, most terrible moments thought possible. Not only is she dealing with the greatest of sorrows any human being can suffer, but she also has no earthly security whatsoever. No husband, no son, nothing. Five verses is all it takes to describe what we would call the women's unimaginable suffering. Five verses. 
And when it comes to our series, this is where their story, the story of of Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, where their story departs from what we saw in the stories of Daniel and his three friends the previous two Sundays. Unlike their experience, sometimes, and you know this, the fire does burn. Sometimes the lions do tear apart. You know this, of course. You don't need anyone to tell you this. Whether it's the loss of a job, a prodigal child, the betrayal of a friend, the death of a parent, the gossip of a co-worker, we know, every single one of us knows that suffering is real. But it's important to remember that the Bible also knows that suffering is real. It doesn't deny it. It doesn't minimize it, nor does it always explain it. What I mean is this. In the two previous weeks in our sermon series, the previous sermons of this series have have detailed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, They've escaped the fiery furnace of Babylon, and we've seen Daniel escape the lion's den of the Medes, and we've rejoiced with with God uh, over his deliverance of them. But now we turn to the book of Ruth, and we're confronted with women who didn't defy the government. They didn't break the law. They weren't looking to stand up for God against pagan kings. They weren't thumbing their nose at the government. No, they weren't doing anything of of that nature. If so, we would have expected suffering, right? But no, they're just living. They're just minding their own business, trying to get by. And yet, they were not spared some of the worst suffering imaginable. Naomi had no idea why her life had been singled out for such tragedy. She had no clue why this kind of heartache had come her way. Theirs was an experience that believers throughout the ages have had, that there are times when God really does seem to be against you. For many of you, I don't have to tell you this, but I do have to put it into words for you. In this foreign land, in this world that is not your ultimate home, your suffering can leave you with more questions than answers. It's been that way since mankind was ushered out of the Garden of Eden. That's why the Bible is full of the the psalmists and the prophets and the believers and the apostles asking God the question, why? Where are you? If your suffering has led you to do the same in your life, then you are in good company. And yet, some of you think that you're not mature enough in your faith because you can't draw a direct line from this experience to that explanation. Some of you think that something's wrong with your faith because you still have so many questions that are unanswered about your pain and about your trials. Some of you think that your faith is not not strong enough because you still have questions. But here's the thing, and I I want this to be medicine for your soul. Your faith is not measured by the number of questions that you have, but by who you're directing those questions to. Your faith is not measured by the number of questions you have, but by who you're directing those questions to. Naomi and her daughters-in-law are suffering terribly. That's a fact that the Bible doesn't run from. But it's also a fact that the Bible doesn't take time to explain away. 
Unlike the story of Job, we don't have some moment in this text where God's pulling back the curtain and we're seeing behind the scenes what's going on. Which is why we've turned to the book of Ruth in a series that we've subtitled Faith in a Foreign Land. Because what you and I face is not merely walking through suffering, but walking through suffering without all the answers. That's not to say that there aren't answers, but it is to say that we just don't always get to know them all. We're told to walk in faith while the mystery still remains. Because suffering doesn't only lead us to questions, it leads us to decisions to be made as well. In other words, how do the godly respond when affliction comes their way? Beginning in verse 6, the, the women have to decide what's next. They, they had heard that Yahweh uh, had begun to bless the, the Israelites with stability and food. Presumably, the, the Israelites had repented of their sin again. Rem, remember that cycle that I talked about earlier? Presumably, they had repented, so God was pouring out blessings on them once more. And so Naomi makes the decision to head back to the land of Judah. This isn't some triumphant return to her homeland, though. She's lost everything in Moab. She has nothing, and in her mind, she might as well go back home and finish out her days. Which is why, in an act of love, she looks at both Orpah and Ruth, who were so good to her sons and who have been so good to her, and she tells them to go back to their own homelands and try to start over. They have time. Evidently, they're both still young enough. They could get married again. They could raise children. All of these things would be helpful in, in gathering to them honor and joy in their life. Naomi doesn't have any of those hopes and dreams anymore. Nothing. Any thoughts of growing old with her children or her grandchildren have been shattered by life. A few years ago, Jenna and I had the privilege of going to see Les Miserables performed uh, by the Broadway tour that came through Birmingham. Uh, it's, it's been my favorite story, and, and, and the show is incredible. And I know I'm giving some of you ammunition to make fun of me about, but that is fine. Like, I own it. Uh, I, I enjoy it. That's fine. Um, yeah, I'm looking at you, Matt. I know. Um, but in the story of Les Miserables, there's a character named Fontaine. And Fontaine... Uh, descends very slowly and very painfully into this terrible, awful suffering and misery. And in one of her last songs in the show, she begins by recounting all the things that she had dreamed when she was still young and beautiful and innocent. But then the song takes a very dark turn. And the lyrics go like this. And I'm not going to sing it. I'm just reading it. Um, so, uh, but there are dreams that cannot be. And there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. You don't have to be a Broadway fan to get those words. To feel the weightiness of those words. Life has killed the dream I dreamed. Naomi herself could have written those words. Orpah, Ruth, she says, you still have hope. 
You still have dreams. I have nothing. Go. I love you. I appreciate you. I thank you for all that you've done, all the kindness that you've shown for me. But it's time for you to go and live your life. Mine is over, so go. It's an incredibly moving scene in Ruth. Initially, Orpah and Ruth refuse to leave, but then Orpah is convinced to head back to her homeland, and, and Ruth decides to stay. And we'll, we'll look at Ruth here in just a second, but, but first I want to continue to let Naomi speak. Because tucked within her exchange with her daughters-in-law and later with the townspeople of Bethlehem, we catch a glimpse of what we're calling Naomi's unbending bitterness. Naomi's unbending bitterness. Look at verse 13. She says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord, of Yahweh, has gone out against me. And then look down at verses 20 and 21. She says to the people of Bethlehem, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity against me. Like, do you hear the anger that is in her words here? The hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. The Almighty has dealt bitterly, very bitterly with me. I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Yahweh has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Charge after charge after charge that she's bringing against God. Life has not only killed her dreams, but it has also begun to shape her, the opinions that she has about the Lord. Her anger is deep and it's settled. This is the great temptation of suffering that we allow our suffering, our circumstances, our experiences to shape our view of God rather than allowing our knowledge of God to shape our view of our experiences. This is the, this is the great temptation. Extreme suffering hits and suddenly the God that we've worshipped as good and loving and kind and committed and perfect becomes in our eyes a God who is angry and vengeful and uncaring, and unconcerned, and untrustworthy. Suddenly, that's how we see God. Rather than taking the Lord at his word, we judge him by our circumstances. And because we've now traded the scriptures for our own perspectives, we let a root of bitterness grow within our hearts. First, it's directed at what we've lost, or what we've gone through, but, but eventually, if left unchecked, if left uncorrected, it always grows to be pointed to the Lord. You are the one who did this to me. You are the one who is against me. You are the one who does not love me. Some of you this morning have this settled anger toward God that's taken root in your heart so that you may go through the motions you may sit here and you may take notes, you may sing these songs, you may pray, you may even lead, but your heart isn't in it anymore. God to you has become one who isn't for you, but one who's against you. God is not your source of comfort, he is your source of misery. Naomi is at this place in our story. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. 
Now, Naomi is a believer. Like, don't tr- we can't try to weasel our way out of this by saying, well, Naomi's, Naomi's an unbeliever. She doesn't know better. No, she is a believer. In fact, I think it's clear that her faithfulness over the years was used by the Lord to draw Ruth to believe. But life's circumstances have been so hard that she's fallen into this trap of self-pitying hopelessness that's given way to hard-hearted bitterness. In every form of suffering you and I face, we have this same option before us. Which is why Hebrews in the New Testament clearly warns us, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Bitterness is always troublesome because it rests on a foundation of lies. Lies about God, lies about life, lies about self. See if you can pinpoint these lies in what Naomi is saying. She believes the Lord is against her. Lie about God. She thinks her life is empty and hopeless. A lie about life. She believes that she is under the judgment of the Almighty. A lie about herself. To paraphrase what one commentator said, Naomi is to the point where she wishes God would let her go. Have you ever been there? I wish you would turn your face away from me, Lord. Give me some relief. I wish you would let me go. Because in your hand, all I've experienced right now is suffering. Let me be. I know that if some of you were honest with yourself, you'd say the same thing this morning. But there's another way. And Ruth illustrates it. Look at verses 15 through 18. And and Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Uh, Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. The only thing that we've been told about Ruth up until this point is that she's a Moabite. That's all we know. She's not part of God's covenant people. Her family probably worshipped different gods. And now that her husband has died, she's at a crossroad of what to do. What's she going to do? Like Orpah? She could return to her homeland and and maybe be married again, maybe have children, maybe have a great life ahead. But over the years, it seems that Ruth had been drawn to the God of her husband's family. Evidently, they had talked about Yahweh enough so that Ruth picked up these things and she began to be changed by them. Side note, don't underestimate the value of of kitchen table conversations. Don't underestimate the simple family prayers in your home. They matter. Ruth even uses some of the same type of covenant language that we see used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Your people will be my people and your God my God is what she says. And that sounds very similar to you shall be my people and I, shall, and I will be your God. Something that Yahweh tells the people of Israel over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And what I think this points to is that Ruth is not only committing to Naomi 
in this moment, she's also committing to Yahweh. This isn't mere devotion to her mother-in-law. This is her public profession of faith in Naomi's God. And the fact that she's using this type of covenant language and surrendering to the Lord leads her to also love Naomi in this extraordinarily self-sacrificial way. She has prospects. Like, don't, don't fail to understand what Ruth is, is doing here. Like, she has prospects. She has a future before her. If she follows Orpah back home, she can have a great life. Naomi has nothing to offer Ruth. And yet, Ruth's heart has been changed. If Judah is where, if the land of Judah is where Yahweh is worshipped, and that's where Yahweh's people dwell, there she will go. And if Judah is where Naomi needs her to be, then she will go with her. The scriptures speak of a friend who's closer than a brother. Here we see a daughter-in-law who's closer than a sister. I will go with you, Naomi. And if I must give up all to come with you to Yahweh's land, then I will do it. My heart is tied to the Lord and tied to you. Where you go, I will go. Because her soul has been transformed by Yahweh, she will devote herself to Naomi. This is what we can call Ruth's unyielding love. Ruth's unyielding love. A bit later in this story, we're going to meet a godly man named Boaz. And historically, Boaz has been seen as the Christ-like figure in this book. Kind of the one who is a, a shadow of one to come. One who's pointing forward to the Messiah. But I'm convinced that because of her love, Ruth is just as much a Christ-like figure as Boaz is. This is pure self-sacrifice for the sake of another human being. It's Ruth saying, I will give up all that I have for your sake, Naomi. Your shame will be my shame, and I will share in your desperation. Is this not what we celebrate about Jesus, not only at Easter, but also during the season of Christmas? The Son of God did not, account, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to at all costs. No, he emptied himself to take the form of a servant for you and for me who had no hope. Self-sacrifice is the very essence of God's love. That is that in Christ, God was giving of himself for the sake of sinners who had no hope of ever climbing out of the pit by themselves. Our Savior took our sin, took our shame upon himself so that through dying on the cross for the sake of sinners and rising again three days later, we could have our sins forgiven and our shame covered. Now, of course, Ruth, she, she didn't know how she was pointing forward to the Messiah. She simply had come to know that Yahweh loved her, and that prompted her by faith to love Naomi in this sacrificial way. In the order of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, Ruth, the book of Ruth, is actually not positioned between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's actually positioned right after Proverbs because there's some ties between Proverbs 31 and how Ruth is described in this, meaning that the, the Hebrews used to think Ruth is the very embodiment of Proverbs 31, uh, Proverbs 31 woman. But here... We see that we can't even stop there. 
She's not just what a godly woman looks like. She models to us what Christ looks like. In that way, she is a guide who shows us the way to be a friend who loves others. Because when the Lord was pleased to reconcile us to himself, by faith in Jesus, we too were called to abandon our former life for the sake of others. For most of us, that didn't mean leaving our home and homeland, but it it did mean separation from who we had been. In essence, we were saying, when we publicly profess our faith, we're saying to those who have ever shared the gospel with us, your people, meaning all believers, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That's what we're saying when we publicly profess our faith. And our commitment to the Lord came with a charge to be committed to loving others, right? Because as we head into chapter 2, I want you to notice something. The Lord uses generous, self-sacrificial love and devotion to transform hearts. At the outset of chapter 2, we are introduced to this man named Boaz, who is considered, who is called in the text, a worthy man, a worthy man. The time of the judges was not marked by a lot of worthy men and women. I'm not going to read all of chapter 2, but basically Naomi and Ruth, Ruth, they need food. They're desperate at this point. So they decide that Ruth's going to go out and gather leftovers from the various fields around them. This was in line with the Old Testament law, which told landowners, don't harvest along the borders of your land. Don't harvest the corners of your land. Leave it for the foreigners, the poor, the widows, the orphans, so that they can come behind your workers and gather what's left over. Well, Ruth left to do that, and As verse 3 describes, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who just happened to be the relative of Elimelech, her late father-in-law. This is a literary wink of an eye, if ever there is one. There's no such thing as something happening to happen. And the writer wants to make that clear. There's no such thing, believer, as coincidence. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. And verse 3 is meant to make us pause. It's meant to make us stop and to think, maybe what's going on here isn't as random. Maybe it's not so much without explanation as we think. Boaz shows that he's a worthy man when he notices Ruth and begins to take special care of her and Naomi. He had heard what Naomi had gone through. He had heard what Ruth had uh, done for her mother-in-law. So Boaz, being this worthy man, begins to take special care of them. First, he gives her permission to gather in his field, and then he encourages her not to go anywhere else. He orders those workers in the field, don't harm Ruth. You can imagine in this time, this was very dangerous work for a solitary woman to go out into the field with all these men. Uh, she She could face a lot of dangerous situations. And Boaz is taking that step to look at the workers and say, don't touch her. We offer her protection. 
Knowing she's hungry, he tells her to eat. Knowing that she's thirsty, he offers her water. And finally, he has his workers set aside an abundance of food for her to gather so that she goes home to Naomi with somewhere between 29 and 50 pounds of grain, which would have met their needs for several weeks. This is what worthy men do. This is what Yahweh's men do. They care for and they protect those who are vulnerable. They don't take advantage of the needy and they don't abuse the weak. They look after the defenseless and they provide for the poor. They speak with gentle kindness and they show no partiality. They are generous and compassionate and they lead with an eye on their God. This is the type of man who does God's work. This is the type of man who represents the Lord well. And in doing so, Boaz is used by God to not only provide for Ruth, but also to change Naomi. When at the end of the day, Naomi sees Ruth return with this super abundance, you can just imagine this huge sack of grain on her back. She returns, and Ruth, or Naomi, is beside herself. Look at the first part of verse 19. He says, it says, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And notice that her praise at, this, at the beginning is this praise of a nameless man who has blessed them. It's not until after Ruth has told her who the man is that Naomi sees a bit more of what's going on and begins to think of the Lord. Look at the second part of verse 19 into verse 20. So Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. You can just imagine the chills that just erupted all over Naomi as she is given eyes to see what she had not seen and what she had forgotten. Boaz, she said, was one of her redeemers, meaning that as a relative, he was in a legal position to ensure their safety and their abundance. This will factor more into the story in chapters 3 and 4 next week, but for now, it's enough to know that Boaz was not just some random worthy guy who was kind to Naomi and Ruth. In the eyes of the law and of the society, he was situated in a special place so that he could bless them in a way that could not have been manufactured. This could not have been orchestrated by men. Instead, it was an expression of Yahweh's unfailing kindness. Yahweh's unfailing kindness. Which is why Naomi turns her praise to God. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. The man uh, says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Yahweh, who in Naomi's eyes had been the one who is against her, now he's the one whose kindness has not failed. Yahweh, who beforehand had, been, had brought her back empty, now he's the one who has provided for her in extraordinary ways. Do you hear the change that is happening in Naomi's heart as the story goes? Bitter hearts become worshiping hearts when they see the glory of God's grace and kindness. 
For so long, she was convinced that God had at best overlooked her and at worst was against her. But this is where God loves to show off. This is where he loves to show off. She was satisfied. Naomi was satisfied with holding on to the lie that God was against her because nothing else made sense to her. God loves to show off. When Naomi turned bitter because of suffering that didn't make sense, God rescued her with kindness that didn't make sense either. She can't explain away how this has happened, how things have just happened to be. Is this not what we ourselves must do when we consider Jesus leaving the glories of heaven to come and rescue us? You this morning who have suffered greatly, hear the word of the Lord. God's kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. He hasn't forsaken you. And he has worked in extravagant, unexplainable, glorious ways to show you that. Naomi offered praise to Yahweh because he had provided her bread through a relative. This morning, give him praise because he's provided you bread from heaven in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has not forgotten you. And if you are in Christ, then he can only and ever be for you, never against you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He knows your suffering. He has seen your suffering. And in Christ Jesus, he has overcome your suffering. It will come to an end, but his affection for you and his commitment to you, those things will never end. This is why instead of turning inward to bitterness, we are freed to invite and invited to turn upward to the throne of grace where our sympathetic high priest stands and he gives to us the grace to help in our time of need. This is why in our temptations to stew and to despair because of our misery, we can take heart because the Son of God himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are suffering in their temptation. And this is why even in the darkest of moments, we can rejoice in our sufferings. Yes, rejoice. Why? Because we know that our suffering produces endurance and our endurance produces character and character produces hope. And this hope never is put to shame. This morning, are you captive to a bitter heart? Freedom is offered to you in the very person whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. Do you think that God has forgotten you? Christmas, the truth of Christmas tells you that he hasn't. Do you think that God is against you? The truth of Christmas says he's not. The Son of God coming to redeem all who would trust in him and his work, that is the single greatest expression of God's kindness to you. And through it, hard hearts can become soft once more. Your hard heart can become soft once more. Remember, it's God's kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance. Turning from bitterness to faith won't come through self-discipline and greater effort. It will come as you meditate on and bask in the kindness of God toward you in Christ. And I pray that you'll do that and experience that even this morning. And for all of us who are believers, I think Ruth has one more important point for us to see and to understand. Sometimes in the darkest of times, 
the light of God's plan shines through not in raising up great men of history or great women of renown, but through the regular, mundane obedience of everyday believers. You don't have to be a Moses. You don't have to be a Deborah. You don't have to be a David. You don't have to be a Mary. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and countless others like them, they show that what God's kingdom needs most and uses most is not fame, but faith. Not charisma, but kindness. Not self-assurance, but self-denial. These are the things and the ways of God. There's a Peanuts uh, comic strip in which Linus gives Charlie Brown some wisdom that I think uh, all of us could benefit from. Linus tells Charlie Brown, I've heard that it's better to light a single candle than to curse the darkness. I've heard that it's better to light a single candle than to curse the darkness. In these divisive times, we have a lot of people on either side of any issue that love to curse the darkness. You can listen to hours and hours of cable news, podcasts, talk radio, social media posts. You can, you can do that for hours and read and hear people curse the darkness. We need more people who will light a single candle. The world wants to see real kindness. The Lord wants to see real devotion, real generosity, real humility. There's a void of those things today. Because as we'll see even more clearly next week, just Ruth being Christ-like toward Naomi and just Boaz being Christ-like toward Ruth, these simple, seemingly insignificant acts of faithfulness and love are used by God to do something we can't even imagine. So instead of waiting for the opportunity to do great and mighty works for God, why don't you start just loving your neighbor as yourself and let God handle the rest? If your suffering never escapes his notice, if your suffering never escapes his use, you can rest assured that your faithfulness won't either. So let's stay faithful and let's keep working. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for Ruth and for Naomi and for Boaz. We're grateful for their faithfulness. We're grateful that you called them to yourself and that even seeing what these obscure characters in some remote place of the Middle East were doing, you saw them, you took notice of them, and you used them mightily. Help us to learn from your word. I pray for the person in here, maybe the brother or sister in Christ, who is trapped in a prison of bitterness. Bring freedom through your kindness. Pray that their hearts would be softened as they meditate on and, and bask in what you have done for them in the sending of your son. I pray for all of us that we would not get caught up 
in cursing the darkness. We'd let you do that, Lord, because you will do it. You've conquered it. We would just be faithful in the simple tasks of loving you and loving our neighbor as ourself. That our simple obedience would be pleasing in your sight and you would use us in whatever way you see fit. I pray for the person who walked in here this morning thinking that life is random. That maybe they doubt that there's a God. Maybe they have so many questions about all the brokenness they see around them. They think, there could not be a God. Not with this mess. I pray that your word would penetrate their hearts. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in them so that they would see you have never forsaken the living or the dead. And that if they'll trust in you, they can have hope even in the midst of darkness. Because there is hope. I pray that they would grab a hold of that through surrendering to you through faith in Jesus. We love you, Lord. We need you. We have so many questions. So help us to cling to the cross. Help us to know that it's not up to us to endure. You will hold us tightly and you never let us go. And honestly, Lord, we don't want you to. So Lord, work in this time as you see fit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.